0: and welcome to Changing Climate, Changing Migration. This is a podcast from the Migration Policy Institute in which we interview top experts around the world to get the latest and the smartest insights on the linkages between climate change and human migration. I'm Julian Haddam. I'm your host, and I'm the editor of the Migration Information Source. That's MPI's online magazine in which we break down some of the most interesting and relevant trends and policies affecting international migration worldwide, and make sense of one of the world's most dynamic and oftentimes most confusing issues. You can find that online at migrationinformation.org. Mountains may not be the first places you think of to be impacted by climate change, but they should be up there. About one-tenth of the world lives in mountain regions, mostly in rural areas, and as glaciers melt and rains fall in increasingly unpredictable patterns, roads and buildings are destroyed by landslides, many people in mountainous areas may be forcibly displaced or may be more interested in migrating voluntarily for a new work and a new place to live. And for a variety of reasons, people in mountain areas face particular challenges that need special consideration. To get a grip on what climate change means for people living in mountainous areas, and whether it's forcing people to leave their homes, today I'm speaking with Amina Maharjan. She is a migration specialist at the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development in Nepal. Amina, thank you so much for your time. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you, Julian. Good to be here. So often when people talk about climate change, some of the first hazards that come to mind are things like sea level rise or hurricanes, which typically affect low-lying areas and places close to the ocean. What are the main climate impacts in mountainous areas, which sometimes get overlooked?
1: You know, if you look at the mountains itself, they also tell... Uh, the stories of climate change impact, because, you know, if you look, if you speak with people closer to mountains, they see that impact so visibly in terms of snow cover changes, as well as the glaciers that has been Mm. retreating in front of their their very eyes. So I think these are the, how do you call that? These are something that you cannot unsee. So these are Mm. the very visible, tangible impacts of the climate change. But not only that, even in their everyday life, everybody is actually facing those impacts. Because um, if you look at mountain livelihoods, these are all dependent on agriculture or forest products, you know, livestock, very closely related with the climatic uh, you know, conditions. So these are things that impact directly every day in their very uh, livelihoods.
0: And so, I guess, um, are we seeing people respond to some of those livelihood changes, in particular, by migrating or being displaced? I guess, what sort of patterns are starting to emerge?
1: So, I think human mobility and migration—you have to look at a more broader perspective, not only climate. So, in mountain mm-hmm. uh, mobility migration has been part of uh, life particularly in high altitudes. If you look at the pastoral uh, life, it's not possible to stay in one place 12 months based on the resources that they have. But uh, in lower altitudes where people are more sedentary, there the migration has become more uh, apparent. So, But what climate change has done is really increase the uncertainty in their livelihoods, as a result of which now you see more increasing people you know, going outside their villages or their homes for people better livelihoods, or even you know, livelihood diversification. So climate change impacts has added that accelerator. But having said that in the mountains, as I said, migration is very, very important. It's been part and parcel of their life, but the patterns, the, the durations, those have now shifted over
0: time. And so what kind of patterns are we seeing? Are people moving to cities or, sorry, yeah, continue.
1: Most of the migration are now towards cities. Because uh, whatever said and done, city-based, even if it is waste labor, uh, these are not directly impacted by climate change so directly. Of course, when floods happen in cities or not in the mountains, but more in the plains, heat waves, of course, it impacts, right? Uh, But other ways is based livelihoods are not so directly impacted. And that's one of the reasons people are moving more to the urban centers, not necessarily major cities, but more urban centers. But again, not all of this uh, migration can be tagged as because of climate change. Mostly it is economic and employment driven, Mm -hmm. but climate change has that accelerator. This is one of those driving uh, forces. Now, what you could also see an increasing trend is displacement. And this Mm -hmm. can be Uh, environmental stresses. And there you can see more and more climate-induced disasters happening uh, in the mountain regions. uh, Last couple of years, now five, six years, we have seen this uh, very complex kind of disasters, like one disaster causing another, you know, having that cat- uh, cascading impacts. And these are where you can see that the direct link with people having to move out of their villages, you know, displacement. For instance, like the landslides, mm-hmm. once it destroys your land and house, what do you do? You just have to move. It might be short distance or to Kathmandu or other, you know, cities, but that that's something we are seeing increasingly in the mountain regions.
0: You mentioned that there is kind of a, a culture of migration or a habitual pattern of migration. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Nepal in particular, I believe uh, the remittances from abroad are a relatively large chunk of the economy. Is it the case that some of those remittances and the money earned by migration can also help prevent uh, or help um, adapt to and mitigate the harsh impacts of, you know, landslides and prevent some of these disasters?
1: You know, it, the answer is not so clear. Uh, we like to see linear you know, relations. That often doesn't happen. Uh, but what we have seen, uh, for instance, in one of our own studies, not only in Nepal, but also in the mountains in India and Bangladesh and Pakistan, that remittances does help people to adapt. Now, Mm -hmm. adaptation uh, can also be, in that study, what we found was people were actually investing in agriculture sector in order to reduce some of those climate change impacts, right? For instance, if in mountainous region, rain-fed agriculture is still very prominent, but if Mm -hmm. you can have an uh, irrigation, then that, you know, rainfall fluctuations does not, variability does not impact you so much. It still does, but not so much. So we found that people were actually still investing in agriculture and livestock sectors, not so much on public or, you know, public goods. Uh, So there is that. And when we were doing, you know, uh, consultations in the communities, we found other ways also people were using uh, migration. For instance, when people are coming to the towns or even abroad, because from this region, people do go for labor migration to Gulf countries. Then you know, mobile uh, becomes an important. It's not a luxury. It becomes a very important way of uh, keeping contact with families. But using mobile, they were also aware of the weather forecast. So that's something people were, you know, using more and more, and that helped them in planning their uh calendar Canada for uh, let's uh, say so there are different ways uh it helps but you mentioned about disasters we found that during disaster immediately after the disaster actually it reduces uh their resilience because when disasters happen in mountain areas most of the places are not that accessible and you know what disasters does it cut, cuts off uh, the access first and foremost be mm-hmm. it virtual or physical and in that case you really have to depend on your own uh villages for rescue mm-hmm. relief Uh, part of it and this is where during 2015 earthquake it's not climate but anyway it's a disaster and this Mm. would be you you know applicable in other uh, climate induced uh, hazards and disasters as well you know there were lesser hands to do that Uh, so Mm. that time we realized that actually it reduces people's capacity to uh, respond but later under rebuilding and others again it was helpful having uh, monies coming from uh, outside so Mm. there is a kind of mixed and it's important to better understand what are the ways you know that migration can actually help adaptation and where are the ways that actually reduces in which case what kind of support is required that kind of but, discussion has not happened
0: mm-hmm. but so so when a disaster strikes it seems like you're saying that there's kind of a downward spiral of how of a bit of ability to adapt and respond because the roads are damaged probably the power lines whatever are shut down and it makes it Harder and harder to rebuild and, and get back together. Is, is that a fair characterization? No, in
1: post disaster, first you have this rescue. So when things have collapsed, you need people you know, on the ground to rescue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the phase where not having enough and mm-hmm. able bodied, because migration is very, again very important to it's gendered, it's mostly yeah. men migrating, and it's mm-hmm. mostly young people migrating, not older people or younger children right so mm-hmm. not having that category of population impacts immediately mm-hmm. after disaster but after one month or two months, when it's time for you know rebuilding then remittances actually help because now you have gotcha. cash in hand to do it so you know you have this immediately after disaster you mm-hmm. have you can see that there's a negative impact but post that then again is a positive that's what i said there is nothing linear about these impacts yeah. and this is a discussion we are having with a with our, um, disaster management authority, uh, how are we going to address, you know, these? Mm
0: -hmm. That's yeah, that's, um, you're absolutely right. I want to tell a simple, clear, linear story, but, uh, as (laughs) often it's, it's much more complicated than that. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, but I guess it's also, we also talk about migration and displacement as a thing that is, um, always possible or that, uh, people, whether if they want to migrate that they can do, but I mean, it is also the case that people either do not want to migrate because they have, or they do not want to be displaced because they have deep ties to their land and their home. And also many people might not be able to, right? Especially if you're talking about remote areas that are hard to reach and it's elderly people, people with physical disabilities Mm -hmm. or whatever the things, I mean, are there cases where people are, might, were leaving either because of a disaster happening and they should go for safety or just because their livelihoods, their brain fed agriculture and things like this are no longer working and they should be leaving, but they cannot either by choice or because of inability to, is is that, yeah. Immobility, is that a problem as well?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Because when we talk about migration, we forget about immobility, people who can't Mm -hmm. move, right. And very rightly mentioned, it could be voluntary or involuntary, uh, because often we feel, and we say that people people who can't move actually stay. But it can be also that people who can move might also still stay. And yeah. uh, these are stories that you often hear, even in disaster cases. Older, older people in particular, that place attachment, you know, attachment to the place where they have called home, spent decades, it's not an easy choice to leave that and go because of uh, when disasters yeah. happen. Often the tendency is, you know, if it is possible to stay there, And rebuild, which again uh, might not be the most, uh, you know, from risk perspective, uh, most positive uh, thing to do, because Mm -hmm. uh, if the risks are higher, you know, yeah, Yeah. because if the risks are higher, then the plausible thing is actually to relocate to a place that is more safer. Now, you know, these are when you say displacement, there is an angle of uh, not being voluntary. Displacement normally Mm -hmm. happens because you don't have a choice, so you just have to. Uh, move. If your house is gone, I mean, it's gone. So you just need to move. Yeah. Now relocation is where uh, you know that that choice comes. But again, the problem with relocation is um, conceptually, you know, it is it is good uh, taking place to a safer, you know, taking people to a safer place. But the problem there is how much of uh, a say uh, does the people who are being relocated have in this whole process? Mm-hmm. Uh, because that would make a difference in terms of what kind of outcome relocation has. So, you know, migration in certain cases can be the only option to re- reduce risk, right? And these are like high-risk disaster, very vulnerable places. But how you deal with that actually impacts the overall outcome for the, uh, for the people. Mm-hmm. Are they being consulted? Are their well-being being being compromised, or is it actually leading to the uh, further better well-being? So these are the things uh, that needs to be considered, uh, even during disaster displacement and relocation plans.
0: Are there examples of of this kind of planned relocation that have either worked or not worked um, that Um, you can speak to? In in
1: in in the mountain context, we don't have so many of those relocations, planned relocations happening. Mm Um some of that happened during 2015 earthquake disasters. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of them actually worked. Some of them didn't work. Those uh, houses are still lying empty. People mm-hmm. simply didn't go and live there. So there are some examples of good planned relocation, uh, but others not. And this is where I mean, this uh, better understand why it worked and in cases where it didn't work, why. So that really matters. And often when we like have not done any research per se, but I have interacted with people. Uh, who had not run to that new locations. And often they say that, you know, our field, everything is still in our own village. So you are simply shifting the house. So how does that work? You know, I'm not going to commute one hour every day uh, to look after my field and then live in a house so far away. So that simply doesn't work. So those practical, everyday practicalities, that often does not get, you know, considered probably when you are planning those relocations.
0: You can't relocate everything, even if you relocate no. yeah, you know, the home, you sell the fields and the yeah, the farm, everything is and the road and the, the and the social networks as well, everything exactly. is all left behind. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So this is something uh, my colleagues uh, in China, they were saying that mm. okay, we did we did the relocation, but how do you relocate livelihoods? Because <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> So you take
1: you know, they were saying that no, we took the In one context, from rural to more, you know, urban context, the people are still not happy. I said, like, maybe in rural areas, they were happier doing their agriculture. Now, what are they doing? They were saying, we're Mm -hmm. trying to give them skills training, you know, to adapt to more, uh, you know, urban uh, livelihoods. But then for younger people, yes. But for older people now learning a completely new skills completely new livelihoods it's difficult obviously people are going to struggle. so I think mm-hmm. these are the things to consider if you really want to have a successful relocation plan yeah
0: <laughs> I guess, um, both with relocation but also kind of more generally what are the implications of this uh, of these of these trends we're talking about it sounds like we're saying that on the one hand uh, younger men and particularly in particular, because of climate and because of broader economic reasons, are looking to migrate to earn money, either in cities or internationally, in the Gulf, elsewhere, leaving behind women, mothers, elderly people, elderly people, younger people. Does that mean that in the long run, I mean, that that has problems for these rural communities that are just old people and children, right? I guess, what are the long-term implications of this migration, especially if those rural areas are increasingly vulnerable to drought and glacier runoff and landslides and other natural disasters and hazards?
1: Um, if the policies remain blind to this phenomenon, mm-hmm. then what I see is the rural populations, uh, areas being you know empty of people, less deep of Something mm-hmm. we have already seen happening in uh, China and India already in the last decade, and this uh, decade we saw it in Nepal. I think mm-hmm. thirty-two districts have uh, reported negative annual growth rate, which means to say yearly they are losing population.
0: Oh wow! So, okay.
1: population is going so people to, are leaving
0: uh, rural areas and not going yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So that is already a trend that we see, um, hmm. and which would be unfortunate because. Uh, know mountain areas as such we don't have so much of land because that puts a lot of pressure on these urban areas and yeah uh, yeah so
0: then yeah what are the conditions in cities then if there's a huge influx of new people
1: exactly the cities then very slowly run out of its capacity to give services and it's not like cities are planet-proof right it has its own yeah (laughs) it has its own risk uh so this is where we are actually heading towards um, mm-hmm. What we feel is uh, at this moment, if we can actually look into this this aspect of migration and start to integrate more into the overall uh, development plans, then mm-hmm. probably this trend does not need to continue at the rate that we are seeing now, uh, mm-hmm. because this has huge implications in terms of what, have, what about the resources uh, in the, you know, rural mountain areas because right now they are being abandoned uh, and it has its own problems, right? So this really needs a system's thinking on how to make, you know, most productive use of both the resources that you have but also the labor force because how much can cities provide and the dependency only on remittances, I think that's not really a, a sustainable way of uh, things, you know, a sustainable way of developmental growth whatever.
0: I guess, what is the government or NGOs, development actors doing to address these concerns uh, and what more or what else should be done?
1: There is definitely concerns now, uh, mm. more than, let's say, earlier. Um, so I, I believe that there is uh, more willingness to try to understand and start trying to integrate this uh, in the overall development plans, not only in adaptation. Right. Mm -hmm. Because again, another thing to consider this adaptation and development, sustainable development is very linked uh, in a way. Uh, The more sustainably developed an area is the better their adaptive capacities in in, in many contexts. So that's why I think we need to really uh, talk about, even if we are talking about climate and migration, that broader uh, framework is very important. And um, even now, there is no appetite to better understand and integrate. But I think how to do it is something still missing. And this is where uh, more focus needs to be had. If I, um, in the mountains, even in India and uh, in Nepal now, uh, from even from police, pol- political parties, there is a lot, lot more interest um, in mm-hmm. this. Um, but internal migration, international migration, of course, there are policies. Now there is more focus on return migration, again, post-COVID, because so many people had to sure. return. And then suddenly government was, okay, so what do you do now? There is more focus on uh, return migration as well. Um, but internal migration so far still not uh, has been addressed in a system, systematic way. I don't think there are any policies per se and how to address that and most of the time we don't even have a data on how many <laughs> people are actually you know uh, you are registered in one place but actually how many people are residing how many people are actually residing somewhere else that right. even that data is missing so that discussions are uh, very important and uh, in one of our new work that's exactly what we are uh, hoping to do uh, how do you bring this mobile population uh, in the whole development discussions you know uh, mm-hmm. that adaptation discussions because often what you see is an adaptation other work. It becomes a background. People are moving for various reasons and that's it. So that is more, you know, uh, considered as a challenge, something that needs to be stopped. Migration still seen see, from that lens, you know, this is a challenge, mm-hmm. something that you need to stop. Everybody, mm-hmm. that's the starting point. How do you stop? And often when I interact with policymakers, that's the implicitly or explicitly it comes. How do you stop mm. migration? And I'm like, is that really what you want to focus? Maybe mm-hmm. we need to focus, you know, differently. How do you make rural livelihoods more sustainable? How do you climate-proof rural livelihoods? Maybe that's the way uh, to look, because if you have sustainable livelihoods, if you have um, adaptive resilient livelihoods, then maybe people would be happy staying back. You know, and it's not only when I say livelihoods really bro- broad. It's not only about income because this is something that has stayed with me. This was actually in Uttarakhand, India. Women, uh, I was just discussing with a group of women there. They said, no, 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 we're not going to stay. And I was like, why? But then like income, everything is... there. And they said that you if you can't use this money to buy the services that you want, it's a piece of paper. So if I have hmm. to, you know, uh, go to the nearest town for the smallest of uh, health issues, why should I stay here? I would rather hmm. shift there. And that's my uh, goal. So those basic... Hmm. That's why I think that broader frame of sustainable development with access to basics, you know, education, health, those becomes very important. If that happens, then of course, I, I think uh, this very rapid and chaotic urbanization, what we are seeing in the region, can probably shift. Uh, having said that, urbanization and urban growth is inevitable and cities will also have to start preparing for more people coming. And Mm -hmm. the countries, I think we just have to plan that, you know, people are going to be attracted to more urban lifestyles. And instead of one big city that cannot deal with it anymore, can we start thinking of more planned urbanizing at national level, you know, where could Mm -hmm. those uh, places be and really have that climate uh, eye when you are thinking of uh, urban growth, because you don't want to Mm -hmm. set up an urban area in a very uh, climate risk urban vulnerable areas, right? So yeah. those are the things to consider, I believe.
0: So urban areas and rural areas, making mm. sure that both kind of are run sustainably. The people can live in a city, in the countryside, in the mountains, in a and sustainable all, way without
1: And we don't need to think only rural and urban, but also connections. Mm. Okay, mm. maybe some of them will go to urban areas to work, but mm-hmm. they might still want to have that rural base. So why is it so necessary to think that you need to have only one base. (laughs) That translocality, you know, uh, multiple bases. And if, you know, if that's how it works and people are happy with it, why not? And this is where I keep saying uh, everywhere that we need to learn from the mountains because the mountain people actually had that multi-local livelihoods, successful multi-local livelihoods for decades, if not centuries, right? So Mm. maybe that's something to really learn from high mountains. How do you do that? (laughs)
0: that's great learn from the mountains i love that okay uh we're that we're basically out of time uh but that is a lovely note to end on um this was a super interesting conversation amina thank you so much for sharing your time for sharing your thoughts this was a very fascinating thank you
1: thank you thank you for this opportunity and i hope your listeners are also enjoyed our conversation i definitely enjoyed sharing mountain (laughs) insights thank you (laughs) julian
0: thank you Amina Mahajin is the Senior Specialist, Livelihoods and Migration at the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development in Kathmandu, Nepal. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Changing Climate, Changing Migration. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to catch all of our new episodes fresh when they come out. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other major podcast platforms. If you like this episode with Amina Marhajan, I bet you'll appreciate other conversations focusing on climate and migration in places like the Pacific Islands and South Asia and Central America. All of those and many more conversations are in our archives online at migrationpolicy.org podcasts. And check out the special collection of migration information source articles on climate migration at migrationpolicy.org climate. While you're there, you should subscribe to the Migration Information Source newsletter. It's absolutely free, comes out twice a month, and offers cutting edge insights and analysis about migration worldwide. It's more in depth than the mainstream m- news, but we promise you won't need a graduate degree to understand it. You can email me directly at source at migrationpolicy.org. I'm always on the lookout for feedback, and I welcome suggestions for new episodes. This episode was produced by Daniela Espacio, with assistance from Lisa Dixon and Michelle Meadowsap. Our theme music is touched by Patrick Petricchios. I'm Julian Haddam. Thank you again.